We're in our message series on the life of Jesus, the time Jesus spent on the earth as a man performing miracles and most importantly, teaching who he is and what life is all about. And the life of Jesus is documented in four books that we find inside the Bible. These four books together are collectively known as the Gospels and today we're going to be in chapter 23 of the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book in what's known as the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew will be in chapter 23. If you need any help finding it, just ask the person next to you. We always say you don't have to agree with everything that I teach today. We're going to teach our position and what we believe the Bible is saying. We're not trying to teach what we want the Bible to say. We're trying to teach what Jesus, God, wanted his word to say when he wrote it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through human authors. And last time we were in this series, we saw Jesus being cross-examined, interrogated by the religious leaders of his day. These are three different groups that were known as the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And together they controlled political life under the authority of Rome. They controlled religious life. They controlled social life. And in Jewish culture to this day, to be a Jew, it is the only religion that is also an ethnicity. So their religious life, their spiritual life, and their social life were one in the same thing. And all of that was overseen by the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes, and they would tell people, this is how you need to live to please God. And so last week we saw them try to trap and ensnare Jesus with these questions that would put him in a moral quandary where however he would answer, he would look to be at fault. And we saw it only result in a greater revelation of Jesus's brilliance as he answered their questions with staggering genius. Well, now they've had their chance to ask Jesus their questions. This week, Jesus is going to preach his final public message, and he's going to direct it at these same religious leaders who've been interrogating him. And we're going to find that there's a fascinating relationship between Jesus' first public message and this, his final public message. And I want to share this up front because I've heard a lot of messages that deal with the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders who were infamous for being hypocrites and not really loving God, and Jesus didn't like him very much. But often I've heard these messages taught with the attitude that this applies to other people. In other words, I've heard a lot of pastors say things like, have you ever known a Christian who was a hypocrite, like the Pharisees? And we all nod our heads and we all think of someone and we're like, yeah, that guy's a jerk. And, and I don't believe that's how the Lord intended us to read his word. And the reason I say that is because the danger is that we could develop a mindset where every time some form of correction shows up in the scriptures, we think of somebody else. And that's a really dangerous place to be when the Bible gives a caution, it gives a warning, it gives a correction. And instead of examining ourselves, we think of somebody else that applies to. I really believe that God and the Holy Spirit intend us to always first examine ourselves rather than thinking, oh man, Bob really needs to hear this. So I want us to realize this morning that there's tremendous Pharisee potential inside all of us. We're all capable of being huge hypocrites. We're all capable of becoming legalistic and turning our relationship with God into empty rituals. So as we study today through the words of Jesus, let's, let's do it with a heart that says, if you have a word of correction for me today, Lord, then I'm open. I'm open. Make me more like you. Do your work in my life. Everybody say, this is for me. No, you don't believe me. Say, this is for me. That's right, it is. All right. So what would you expect Jesus' final public message, his last public sermon to be? I would think it would be extra warm, extra loving, extra accessible, extra inclusive, and stay as far away from controversy as possible, you know? Sort of like the, uh, the final couple of speeches you're gonna give uh, if you're running for president. You just wanna stay in a, a safe lane and not do anything crazy. No comment on that right now. What's going on with our brothers and sisters down south? They're not following that model. Let's just say that. But not Jesus, you see, you may have heard Jesus criticize and chastise the religious leaders before, but nothing we've read before in our study 
compares to what takes place in chapter 23. Because 90% of chapter 23 is Jesus chastising and criticizing the religious leaders. They finish their inspection of Jesus and now Jesus is gonna share with them the results of his inspection of them. Yeah, not good. It is Jesus' last attempt to shock some of them into repentance, into turning from their false religion and really following God. The Apostle Paul wrote that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That means it's always God's first intention to come to us and overwhelm us with how much he loves us and how kind he is. That's how he likes to do things. But when we won't respond to that, he will turn up the heat in our lives and do everything he can to help us see the truth. And sometimes the final pitch a person needs to hear is, yes, God is wonderful. Yes, Jesus loves you. Yes, he's the best way to live. But if none of that does it for you, then as my last appeal to you, let me explain to you, you are going to hell without Jesus. You're going to spend eternity in torment and anguish without him because you're a sinner who has rejected your creator. Sometimes that's the final appeal that people need in order to change. If the kindness of God won't work and it needs to be done through the fear of the Lord, then so be it. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And I would dare to say that it is successful for in the book of Acts we read that there were actually a great amount of Pharisees that turned and followed Jesus after the resurrection. So let's read together Matthew 23 verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes, to the crowd, and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees, so just get the picture, they're still there, the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees, well, they sit in Moses' seat. Now, the phrase Moses' seat refers to the man, Moses, who God used to lead the people of Israel for several decades, hundreds of years before this. Most famously, Moses was the man God used to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, where they had been in slavery for 400 years, and God gave his law to Moses to give to the people of Israel, God's law being all the commands that laid out how one would need to live in order to meet God's standard of what is good. Of course, the standard was intentionally impossible to meet, but that's a story for another day. Moses was the man that God used to deliver his law to his people. And a more accurate way to translate verse one would be the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in Moses' seat. They've seated themselves in Moses' seat. In other words, they had claimed a position of authority that God had not called them to. They were taking the position of being God's law liaisons to the Jews. The problem is that you can search the whole Old Testament and nowhere in there will you find anything that says, appoint among yourselves Pharisees and scribes that they may instruct you on how to live. It never says that. God had called Moses to deliver his law, but God didn't call the Pharisees to do the same thing. Let's read verse three. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. In other words, Jesus is saying, do as they say, not as they do. He's saying they've got some good teachings to share with you. And they're telling you some good things. They're talking about God's law being important. And you know what? It is. Just make sure you don't follow the example of their lives because they don't actually live out what they teach. He's saying they've got no integrity. They teach one thing and they live another way. But here's what I want to highlight for us. Lest we all begin thinking now of somebody who has shared something with us and turned out to be a hypocrite. We're like, yeah, just like that person. And lest we do that, don't miss this practical little truth that is implied in here. And this is what it is. Truth is truth regardless of its source. That's what Jesus is saying. Truth is truth regardless of its source. In other words, if something is true, the person through whom that truth is delivered doesn't make it more or less true. The messenger has nothing to do with whether it's more or less true, if it's true. So Jesus doesn't say, these guys are hypocrites, therefore you can disregard everything they say. He doesn't say that. He says, when they tell you what the scriptures say, it's true. Just don't follow the example of their lives because they don't practice what they preach. We'll say, well, I can't receive from him. He's a jerk. He's a hypocrite. He might be. 
But if what he's saying is true, then it's still true. We can receive truth from less than perfect sources. In fact, that's almost always how it works. We wouldn't have the Psalms if we took hypocrites out of the Bible, right? Murderer, adulterer, conspirer. King David wrote most of the Psalms. Our culture doesn't understand this principle. You see, in our culture, if a man shares truth and that man is wearing nothing but a towel and spends most of his day meditating on top of a mountain in India, if that man says the truth, our culture will go, wow, wow. This is incredible, this is profound. Now if Greg from accounting shares the same truth, our culture will go, put a lid on it, Greg. Come on, you're you're talking about things that you don't understand. The Lord intentionally concealed and continues to conceal the truth in humble packaging. Now why does he do that? Even our Lord and Savior Jesus is described in the Bible as coming to earth as a man with nothing notable about his appearance. You see, we always think if we were alive when Jesus was walking around Jerusalem, we could pick him out of a crowd. You couldn't. You'd have no idea who he is. There's nothing remarkable about his appearance when he's on the earth as a man. So why does God do things this way? So that those who wanted a show would be disappointed by Jesus, but those who wanted the truth would find him. That's what it is. You see, the person who says, oh, I'll receive the truth if it comes from a guru in India on top of a mountain wearing a towel, but I won't receive it from Greg who works with me in the office. That person's not really interested in truth. They want to show. So the Lord says, I'm going to make my truth available to anyone who wants it, but I'm always going to conceal it in humble packaging. I'm going to deliver it through flawed people. Why? So that it's about the message, not about the messenger. That's the whole point. Write this down. Truth is truth, regardless of how flawed the vehicle through which it is delivered may be. Truth is truth, regardless of how flawed the vehicle through which it is delivered may be. And I share this to encourage you. If you've ever had somebody pour into your life and that person has let you down, had a massive moral failure, I just want you to know that the truth and the teaching that they poured into you is not invalid, it's not lost. If they were sharing God's truth, it's valid, it's good, even if they may be a great disappointment as a messenger. Because I guarantee you at some point or another, I'll be a disappointment to you as a messenger. But our hope is that your confidence and faith is in the message and we recognize that truth is truth. So when the religious leaders teach truth, do it. But don't follow the example of how they live. Why? Verse 4. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. You see, these religious leaders were the ones who kept adding and adding to God's law, making it more and more detailed. So there were more and more things to remember, more and more ridiculous rituals to follow, more and more and more and more and more burdens, more and more things you had to do. And they only taught messages. They only preached at synagogue on things that people needed to do. There were no messages of encouragement like God said he'll never leave you or forsake you. It was just, let's remind everyone again about the importance of ceremonial washing before meals. I saw some of you eating out at McDonald's this week. Was gravely disappointed. I questioned your salvation because you only poured the water over your hands six times when we all know it's supposed to be seven. And as a result, whenever somebody mentioned God's law, the response in people would not have been, oh, I love God's law. It's it's freeing. It's liberating. It's life-giving. No, the response would have been, oh, here we go again. What extra thing do I need to do or not do now? And that just grieved the heart of God. It grieved Jesus because they were putting heavy legalistic burdens on people and they weren't doing anything to encourage them. They weren't setting an example for them. They weren't praying for them or anything like that because what they really wanted was to create a bunch of rules that they knew they could follow so that they could feel morally and spiritually superior to everybody else. It was an attitude of, you need to do this and this and this and this and this and if you find that too difficult, well, it's probably just that you're not really saved. You probably don't really belong to God. You're probably destined for hell. That's that's probably why you find it so hard. And it was just such a misrepresentation of the heart of God. It made Jesus angry 
Because in contrast to that, what had Jesus said following him in his law should be like? What did Jesus say it should feel like? He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you more burdens. No, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. That's the only autobiographical statement Jesus made about himself. I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. It's light. This is why when it comes to people following Jesus, we look for forward movement. We look for increasing spiritual fruit, increasing love for Jesus, a person becoming increasingly like Jesus. It may not happen as fast as you or I think it should, in our sometimes judgmental estimation. But as long as there's forward movement, we know that God's at work in a person's life. So when someone gets saved, we don't immediately say, oh, here's the list of the first 200 things you need to start doing. Here's the list of the first 200 things you need to stop doing. We don't do that because we don't want to load people down. All we're looking for is, is the Holy Spirit at work in a person, is their movement toward God. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not done yet. God's not done with me. I'm still working on my list. There's stuff on there I thought I dealt with long, long ago. So we look for forward movement. And the older you get, the more you realize that's all you can say about yourself. Praise God, there's forward movement in my life. I'm not who I should be, but I'm not who I was. And I'm thankful for that. So if we structure this study in the form of self-examining questions, I think a good first question would be, do I judge a brother or sister? You write this down. Do I judge a brother or sister without encouraging and praying for them? Do I judge a brother or sister without encouraging and praying for them? Sometimes we're going to have to deal with issues with each other. It's not being loving to never confront any real issues. Sometimes we're going to need to hold each other accountable. But I don't want to be somebody who just sees where other people are failing. I want to be somebody that puts an arm around the shoulder of that person and says, keep going, God hasn't left you. He's not done with you yet. I want to be somebody who prays for them. I don't ever want to be somebody who brings even godly judgment into a person's life and says, that's not right, when I haven't even prayed for them yet. I'm not actually prepared to walk with them and help them. I don't want to be that person that says, hey, I just noticed something in your life and I just wanted to put a burden on you. God bless you. God bless you. Let's make it our goal to be the kind of people who never raise an issue or challenge someone on the way they're living if we haven't prayed for them first. If we're not prepared to keep praying for them. If we're not prepared to keep encouraging them. That's the kind of people we need to be. Verse 5, then Jesus keeps talking. He says, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of detail here. Phylacteries were, were leather pouches that Jewish men would wear while praying. And inside these leather pouches would be parchment with four columns that would contain four key passages of Scripture, including the famous Shema of Deuteronomy 6. You can look that up if you're interested. But they would wear one in the middle of their forehead with like a headband around it and then this like little leather box around their forehead and one on the left arm just above the elbow. And the reason they did this is really ridiculous. It's because they took an overly literal view of God's command to keep their minds on the law of God. So they were like, well, clearly that means we should make little boxes and tie them to our heads. It's like, it's like, guys, guys, it's not what God meant, but that's what they did. And so here's where it gets funny, because to look more and more spiritual, they would use bigger and bigger straps to put bigger and bigger boxes on their forehead and their arms. It was like, like when you see Flavor Flav wearing the clock like around his neck. This was like the Orthodox Judaism version of Flavor Flav would be like to have this massive chest strapped to your head and on your arm. Josephus, the historian, records some guys had leather phylacteries on their forehead so big they couldn't lift up their head. They would actually walk around like this which they probably were cool with because it made them look like they were praying and made people think they were more spiritual, which was the whole point of everything that they were doing in the first place. 
Well, also in, in Numbers 15, the Lord had told Moses to pass an instruction onto the people of Israel. I'll just read it to you. You don't need to turn there or anything. God said, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commands of the Lord and to do them. So it was like tying a knot around your finger. You have some blue thread and the tassels on the corner of your robe and it's a reminder to follow the commands of the Lord. Well, as time passed and the Pharisees wanted to look more and more and more spiritual, the blue thread and the tassels turned into a blue stripe around the bottom of the robe, which became bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where, you know, guys would be like, guys, six inch blue stripe, how spiritual am I? I've got a, you know, three foot wide chest strapped to my head. Everybody knows what's up. I'm a spiritual, spiritual man. So they were doing everything they could to make themselves appear spiritual and important to other people. So Jesus says, everything they do is to try and impress people, not to impress God. So here's the question for us. You can make a note of this. Who do I want to impress with my spirituality more? People or God? Who do I want to impress with my spirituality more? People or God? Am I cool with it if everyone around me thinks I'm walking with Jesus, thinks I'm doing everything I could, thinks I'm a good Christian, but I know inside I've got no relationship with God right now. Am I satisfied with that? As long as everybody else thinks I'm playing the part well enough, I'm cool with it. Because if I am, then the reality is I care more about appearing spiritual to people than I do to God. Verse 6 Jesus says they love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Jesus is saying they really only got into this whole religious leadership thing because they wanted attention and admiration from people. Now just please know this is really not an issue where we live. I have never told someone in Vancouver that I'm a pastor and had them respond with, oh my gosh, I wish I had known I was in the presence of a pastor. That's never happened. It's never going to happen here. So you don't need to be like, Jeff, you need to watch out for this. No, I don't. This is a Jewish culture where pretty much every ethnic Jew was also a religious Jew. So being a religious leader was a big, big deal. It was a high position in society. When I tell people I'm a pastor here, they're like, like for a job? So it's not at all the same thing. It's like, yes, yes, like for a job, the Lord actually provides for me to do that. So, huh, how about that? So, verse eight, but you, he's now speaking to his disciples in the crowd. He says, but you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren, you're all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ's. Speaking of the Messiah himself, Jesus. Now, Jesus is not saying it's wrong to call someone pastor or teacher because Paul the Apostle tells us himself in 1 Corinthians 12, 28 that God places teachers in the church, that they're a gift to the church. That same Paul also calls himself the father of the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians four fifteen. What Jesus is talking about is the person who takes those positions in place of God, who says, I'm the teacher in place of the teacher. I'm the father in place of the father. The one who says, you don't need to talk to your father in heaven. You can talk to me, and then I'll talk to your father in heaven. You don't need to read your Bible. I'll, I'll teach you. I'll tell you what it says. I really want to comment further on that. But if you have ears to hear what the Lord is saying through his word, then you've probably already figured it out, that that's a pretty indicting statement on a specifically large institution of religion in our world. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you'd probably be wildly offended, so don't worry about it. But this is why here at New Hope, our model of teaching is to open up the word of God and study it together so that you can know it's not Jeff saying these things, it's just Jeff pointing to God's word saying, look what God says to us. See it for yourself, read it for yourself. Now talk to God for yourself. As the Bible says, there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 
There's one mediator. There's nobody between you and God except Jesus. He's the bridge. Do you realize that in Christianity there is no hierarchy? There is no hierarchy. We're all brothers and sisters of Jesus, all sons and daughters of God. It's a flat org chart. Now we have different roles. We have different functions we're called to in this life, but we don't have differing levels of importance. The husband is not more important than the wife. God has simply called him to the role of leading the family. That's his role. The pastor is not more important than the person running the projector. God's just called the pastor to the role of leading the church. In the Bible, God says we're to honor one another, preferring each other before ourselves. And that we're not to show preference to one person over another. It's a flat org chart. We're all brothers. We're all sisters. We all have different roles and we do our best to honor each other in the roles that God has called us to. So what Jesus is addressing here are those who would say that's wrong. There is a hierarchy in the faith. I am above you. I am more important to God than you. God talks to me more than he points to you. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. And don't follow any leaders who preach that or teach that. So what's a truly great leader like? Well, verse 11, Jesus says, but he who's greatest among you shall be your servant. That's who the great one is, the servant. Verse 12, and then I underlined this whole thing. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. You want to be important, you, you, you want everyone to respect you and admire you and you spend your life trying to do that, trying to get the important position, the important seat, you're going to end up being humbled. Jesus says if you really want that, then pursue humility. Take the place of a servant. Stop looking for it and it'll come. And the irony of that is when it finally comes, you don't really care about it anymore because you've been living as a servant. That's the whole point. It's a truth perfectly captured in the life of Jesus. For Jesus himself had earlier said, whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, unlike these religious leaders, Jesus actually lived what he taught. Jesus, who would shortly humble himself to death on a cross, is the same Jesus who now in this moment holds the name that is above all names, sits on the throne above all thrones. He is the ultimate proof that he who humbles himself will be exalted. The humblest man who ever walked on the face of the earth, Jesus Christ, is now the most exalted being in the universe because this principle is true. Now, we're gonna move on. Verse 13 through 35 are very interesting. And Bible scholars tell us something very interesting because Jesus' first public message was probably his most famous. It's what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount is a little section of verses, about seven or eight verses in Matthew 5, where Jesus pronounces eight blessings for eight specific attitudes. And those eight blessings are known together as the Beatitudes, attitudes that we are to be. Well, here in Matthew 23, in Jesus' final message, he is going to pronounce on these religious leaders eight woes for eight attitudes. And we're going to spend some time examining the contrast together. And I want to encourage you to do your own study this week. I put the reference on your outline, but go back and listen to our teaching on the Beatitudes and contrast the two in even greater detail because the way they line up here is unbelievable. Eight blessings in his first message, eight woes in his final message, and every one of them corresponds to each other perfectly in order. The first to the first, second to the second, third to the third, all the way through this. So in the Beatitudes, Jesus had previously said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What he meant by that is he was saying, blessed are those who recognize their spiritual condition, that without God, they're in spiritual poverty. They need a savior. They need saving. He said, those ones, they'll get the kingdom of heaven. Verse 13, in contrast to that, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. In contrast to those who recognize their need for a savior, the poor in spirit, the religious leaders were proud in spirit, praying prayers like, God, thank you that I'm not like other men. 
And Jesus says, your pride isn't just keeping you out of the kingdom of heaven. It's stopping other people from getting in too. Jesus had previously said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. By that he means blessed are those who are grieved over their sin. Those who look at themselves and mourn because they see, man, I'm a sinner and I can't stop. I keep making decisions that bring negative things into my life. I just can't escape my sin. Jesus says, blessed are those who understand that about themselves because they're going to be comforted. They're going to find a solution to that issue. Verse 14, Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. You see, instead of comforting those who were mourning, the scribes would serve as estate planners for widows following the deaths of their husbands. And so they would use that as an opportunity while sitting down and going through their estate to say, uh, you know, Mrs. Goldstein, the best way that you could really honor your husband's legacy would be with a sizable donation to the temple or to my ministry, actually. And so Jesus is saying, listen, instead of comforting those who mourn, you're praying on those who mourn. And while they're going to be comforted, you're going to be condemned. Jesus had previously said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And by that he meant, blessed are those who submit their lives to God. Not those who say, I'm the boss of me, I do what I want. He said, blessed are the meek, those who say, he's my God. And I do what he wants. I live for him. He's in charge. Blessed are those who live their lives serving others and teach others to do the same. In contrast, verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, to make one convert. And when he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. But please notice the care that Jesus is putting in to be non-offensive in this his final message. He's just so careful. I so appreciate that about him because as we all know, if you're really representing Jesus, nobody's gonna ever be offended by what you say. So that's being facetious if you didn't pick that up. So in contrast, in contrast to those who humble themselves and submit themselves to God, the proud are destined for hell. You see, these Pharisees would travel great distances to convert one person to their legalistic, hypocritical flavor of Judaism. And the great tragedy of legalism is that when a person is drawn into it, they become even more legalistic than the person who drew them in. I've seen this over and over again, and what usually happens is the person who was drawn in ends up becoming very judgmental towards the person who drew them in because they say, I I'm going to go further than them. I'm going to follow even more rules. I'm going to do even less. I'm never going to do anything fun. That's how serious I'm going to be. And uh, clearly, you know, the guy who actually got me saved, he might not even be saved. That's what happens. They turn them into a son of hell. And Jesus' condemnation is that you're not turning men into sons of God. Turning them into sons of hell. The religious leaders weren't meek. They weren't humble. They weren't submitted to God. They were proud and they were serving themselves. And I want to challenge us with this question. I'll unpack it in a second. Because I was thinking, how do we apply this to our day? And I think it's this question, you can make a note of this. Do we encourage our brothers and sisters to submit to God or their feelings and emotions? Do we encourage our brothers and sisters to submit to God or their feelings and emotions? You see, the issue was that the religious leaders were making converts to a system that didn't actually come from God. They were calling it Judaism. They were calling it following God's law. But Jesus says they're really producing sons of hell. They're misrepresenting what the gospel is. They're misrepresenting the offer that God is making. They're making an offer to people that God never made. And I think in this day and age, we're in danger of producing sons of hell when we make people an offer on God's behalf that God has not made. When we tell people, hey, you know, just trust your gut. Or, you know, just, just do what feels right. Or, hey, listen, God wants you to be happy. So, it, you know, if that's your conviction, just, just roll with that. We're making sons of hell. We're walking them right to the front door of hell. And we need to be men and women of integrity who will remind each other that what we feel doesn't change what God's word says. What we think 
doesn't change what God's word says. Wishing a thing to be true does not make it so. Really understand this. Wishing a thing to be so does not make it so. The best example I'm seeing of this in our world right now that just blows my mind is the same portion of our society that would be anti-Christian and really be against us and view us as restrictive or hateful. Uh, that same group of people would say, oh, you Christians, you, you don't recognize science. Of course, it's not true. You don't recognize science and you believe fables and myths and nonsense. That's the same group of people who is now saying, can you believe that there are ignorant people out there who believe that whether you're a male or female is determined by your genitals? Can you believe this? When we all know it should be determined by how you feel. It's just absolutely mind-blowing to me that we're staunch advocates for science over here when it suits our purposes, or we think it does, but as soon as it doesn't, we even throw science out the window. And now we say, well, yeah, but science has to be submitted to what I feel. Because what I feel makes something true. It's just science. It's completely insane, but it's happening all around us all the time. And so the challenge for us is, as the societal pressure mounts all around us, will we cave in and elevate the desires of man above the word of God? And I'm not talking about with your non-believing friends. I'm talking about in the church, among believers, are we gonna tell each other, hey, hey, this is what the word of God says. Even when the person says, yeah, I know what the word of God says, but I just have this feeling that this isn't for me. I actually had a Christian tell me that once. I feel like God's making an exception for me. I was like, I'm looking for the asterisk next to the verse. There's no asterisk. Your name is not on the bottom of the page with the word except for in front of it. There's no asterisk. This is what the word of God says. It's so fascinating to me that society begins to say, we should do this. We should change our morals on this. And then a group of Christianity will begin to say, hey, you know, I've changed my view on the Bible. Coincidentally, my view is now exactly what will make it easiest and most convenient for me to function in the society that I live in. It's just a coincidence. It's just a coincidence that my new interpretation of Scripture helps me avoid difficult conversations with people who don't agree with me. It's just a coincidence. And so the real question is, in the church, are we going to hold each other to the Word of God? Or are we going to say, well, pff, who am I to judge? When God said, no, no, judge according to the word. Stand for truth. How we feel, what we wish was true doesn't change what is true. Jesus had previously said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who want the real thing, a relationship with God, to be right with God, who don't just want people to think they're right with God, but actually want to be right with God. Verse 16, woe to you blind guides who say, oh, whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing, it doesn't count. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it, it counts. You see, their interpretation of righteousness had got so twisted to enable themselves to get out of making promises, they had come up with an actual law that says, well, if you say, I swear by the temple, doesn't mean anything. You have to say, I swear by the gold in the temple. Then it's a binding thing. So what does Jesus think of their little theological games? Verse 17, fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? The gold of the temple is only significant because it's in the temple, the house of God. Verse 18, and they would also say, whoever swears by the altar, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. You see, they weren't hungry and thirsty for truth to know what it really means to walk with God and to know him. They were playing games that Jesus said revealed them to be really insincere fools. 
And we should be careful because when we know what the Lord desires us to do and we try to dismiss it with some ridiculous interpretation of scripture or some unrelated issue or question, we do the same thing. We do the exact same thing. When we sincerely hunger and thirst for righteousness, the only question is, Lord, what do you want? What do you want from me? How do you want me to live? What do you want me to give to you? What do you want my life to look like? So here's the question for us, write this down. Do we twist or distort God's word to justify our sin? Do we twist or distort God's word to justify our sin? It's amazing how good we can be at doing that. Bible can have 300 verses saying one thing and we find one that's a little bit vague and we're like clearly this one, this one changes the other 300 and this is the one, this is the one that counts. So I'm gonna base my behavior on this one. Because if you take this verse and you just remove just three words from this verse, then what I'm doing is fine. Jesus had previously said, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. So blessed are those who recognize God's been merciful to me. So I have to be merciful to other people. In contrast, verse 23, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. You see, the tithe is giving 10% of your income to the Lord. The first 10% of everything you make goes to God. That's what the tithe is. It was something established even before God gave his law through Moses as something God wanted his people to do. So mint, anise, and cumin are all spices. And Jesus is saying here, you guys tithe out of your spice garden. And they really did. They'd have a little spice garden at their house. And to look really spiritual, they'd go around with their tweezers and they'd find their plant, their anise plant, and they'd count the leaves. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Take the 10th one off, one, two, three, four, five. And then come with some sort of little baggie to the temple. You know, here I am tithing <laughs> even on my spices. Because that's just what you do when you're the kind of guy with a six inch blue border on your robe and a chest on your head. Check it out, guys. But Jesus says now, get this. He says, you've done that and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faith. See, they had tithe out of their spice garden but wouldn't help the widow who was being exploited by somebody. Jesus says, you follow God's laws but you miss the whole point of his law. Things like justice and mercy and faith. Or to put it another way, they felt that since they were tithing, since they were honoring God with their money, they didn't really need to be bothered with things like justice and mercy and faith. It revealed that they really believed money was more important than all of those things. And so as long as God got his money, it was all good, right? See, they didn't understand God doesn't need our money. God has us tithe because of what he wants for us, not because of what he wants from us. He wants us to be freed from trusting in money. He wants us to trust him more than an extra few dollars at the end of the week. He wants us to remember that he's our provider and our sustainer and that every good thing in our lives come from him. That's why he asks us to tithe. But the religious leaders thought of tithing as buying righteousness, that you could buy right standing with God. Now can you imagine a church telling you that you could buy God's favor with money? Could you imagine? <sighs> I'll move on, I'll move on. Now, please note, Jesus doesn't say, you don't need to tithe now that I'm here. Now what does he say? Check it out, he says this very next thing. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. He's saying tithing's important, it's good, you should keep doing it, but tithing is part of what it means to be submitted to God. You don't neglect the heart of God's law, things like justice, mercy, and faith. You don't get to just write a big check and then not care about any of that stuff. So please get this, Jesus affirms tithing. Right here in the New Testament, Jesus affirms tithing, but he affirms it as just part of what it means to serve God. So make a note of this. Jesus affirms tithing, but declares it to not be a substitute for weightier issues like justice, mercy, and faith. He says it's a good thing. Keep doing it, 
But don't think that you can do that instead of caring about justice and mercy and faith. In verse 24, he says, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Let me explain this series. Jesus is actually making a joke facetiously because according to Leviticus 11, part of God's law that was given through Moses, a, a camel was the largest unclean animal while a gnat was the smallest unclean animal. So Jesus is saying, you guys like, because they really did this, you strain your soup to make sure that a gnat didn't get in it while it was sitting on the table. You strain your soup so you don't get a tiny little unclean gnat in your food. You don't miss the fact there's a friggin' camel swimming around in your soup. That's the analogy he's making. You're caring about all the small stuff, like tithing out of your spices, and you're missing all the big stuff. You're majoring in the minors, and you're minoring in the majors. They weren't being merciful. They are being heartlessly legalistic. Jesus had previously said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So blessed are those who have an undivided heart for God. Blessed are those who deal ruthlessly with their own sin. In contrast, in verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. A man's not made righteous by pretending to be righteous in his outward actions. A man's made righteous from the inside out. You guys are so busy making sure that what everyone sees on the outside of you is impressive that you're missing how awful you are internally. You're a mess. Your hearts are filthy and you're blind to it. So here's the question for us, write this down. Am I trying to change who I am by changing my actions? Or am I being changed by the Holy Spirit from the inside out? Am I falling into the trap of thinking, if I can just change the things I do, then I'll change who I am? Or am I really becoming somebody different? Am I really becoming more like Jesus, a new creation from the inside out? You see, that's what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, that very first message he taught. He said, you know, it's great you guys aren't murdering anyone, but you haven't dealt with the issue that the same hateful attitude that leads to murder is in all of your hearts. That same hate towards another human being, you've all had it. You all have it. And murder is just the end result of that process. So Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, essentially, what are you gonna do about that? I'm so glad you have self-control, but you know you're still a mess on the inside. You've still got sin at the root of who you are. You need to be changed from the inside out. That was the message of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus had previously said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who seek to help men live in peace with each other by introducing them to the Prince of Peace, Jesus. In contrast, verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So what's a whitewashed tomb? Why would a tomb be painted white? Well, because in the Jewish feast of Passover, every able-bodied Jewish male was supposed to make the journey to Jerusalem, and this often meant a journey of several days if you were coming from the north or from another country. And if a Jew accidentally stepped on or walked across a tomb, they would become ceremonially unclean. And they would have to go through this ritual to become ceremonially clean. The length of that ritual to become clean again would be longer than the Passover they were on their way to. And so they would not be able to participate in the feast of Passover. They'd be like, oh, for crying out loud. They wouldn't be able to participate in Passover, which was a big, big deal. So what considerate Jews would do is in the weeks leading up to Passover, they would go out because the local people would know where these tombs and gravestones were, uh, even if they had some dirt washed over them or dust or something like that. And they'd brush the dirt off and they'd paint them bright white with this paint so that traveling pilgrims would not accidentally step foot on these tombs. And so Jesus uses this as a spiritual metaphor for the spiritual condition of the religious leaders because while they did their best to appear pure and holy, white on the outside, he says internally, you're full of the stench of death 
just like a whitewashed tomb. Oh, they look pretty, bright and white and clean and happy, but there's death and decay buried beneath that. And the best example of this is that at this very moment, they're plotting to kill Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And so Jesus says, even so, in the same way, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus had previously said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, blessed are those who suffer in this life for loving God more than this life. He said, they're blessed. They're gonna get the kingdom of heaven. In contrast, verse 29, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. So they'd make a big deal about turning the tombs and the burial places of the Old Testament prophets, these prophets of God that he had sent over the last several hundred years, they would make a big deal about turning their burial places into monuments. They'd decorate them, build buildings around them. And they would say, hey, you know what? Yeah, our fathers were the ones who stoned and killed these guys, but if we had been alive at that time, we wouldn't have done that. We would have responded to their message because we would have recognized that they were God's prophets. Verse 31, Jesus says, Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. So what he's saying is you guys are witnesses against yourselves. He's saying, you're gonna be an exhibit that you're just like your father's. And he's saying, fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. What he's saying is you're about to do the same to me. You're about to do the same to me and prove that you're just like your father's. So get on with it. Get on with it. Show yourself for what you really are. Verse 33, serpents, brood of vipers. To the Jew, let me tell you what he's saying. He's saying sons of Satan. That's what that means. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, underline this, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Just catch this. This is very interesting. Who did Jesus say was the one who had sent Israel prophets, wise men, and scribes? So who is Jesus saying is the one who sent Elijah, Samuel, Elisha, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, even John the Baptist? Who's the one who sent them? Jesus is saying he did. I did. He said, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Jesus was the one relating to Israel. Verse 34, therefore indeed I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So just as your fathers killed all the prophets, Abel to Zechariah, the first and last Old Testament martyrs, A to Z, he's saying you do the same thing. You're trying to figure out how to kill me right now, the prophet of prophets, and you'll continue to kill the prophets that I'm gonna send you in the future. He said this speaking of the church and the apostles and how hard history tells us that the Jews would work with Rome to persecute Christians in the early years of the church. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, but you guys are the ones doing the persecuting. So woe to you. So here's the question for us, make a note of this. How do I receive God's correction in my life? How do I receive God's correction in my life? How do I respond to it? When the Holy Spirit sends a prophet into my life, may not be a person, but he sends his word into my life, a word of correction. When the Holy Spirit speaks to my heart, when he illuminates something in his word, when he sends someone to give me a message, when you're having a conversation with someone and you just know God is speaking through them into your life. How do I receive God's correction in my life? Do I receive it with joy and humility saying, God, Thank you for speaking. Thank you for letting me hear you. Thank you for pulling me off this destructive path and putting me on a path toward life instead. Or when the word of God comes into our life, do we have the same response that the Jews had throughout the Old Testament? Get out of here. I don't want to hear this. 
You don't know what you're talking about. You're not welcome here. Do I despise the correction of the Lord? Yeah. Yeah, I know what God's word says, but my situation is different. My situation's different. Yeah, I know they're a wise believer who's giving godly counsel, but, but they don't understand my situation. How easy it is to judge the Israelites for being stubborn and not listening to God's messengers when we can be so quick to respond to God's correction in our lives today the exact same way. Verse 36, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. What things will come upon this generation? The generation at that time for killing those God sends to them? All the same things they did to those prophets. All the bloodletting, all the persecution, all the scourging, the tribulation, the death. That was all going to come upon this generation. For in just a few days, the Jewish crowd will cry out for the death of Jesus, demanding that Pontius Pilate crucify him. And they will say, Matthew 27, 25, his blood be on us and our children. And it would be. Jesus said, all these things, they'll come upon this generation. Because there were people alive then, and their children were alive 40 years later, when Jerusalem would be annihilated. 1.1 million Jews would die as Rome swept through Israel and Jerusalem and wiped it out. Can you even fathom that number in one military campaign against one people group? 1.1 million people, including 10,000 in Damascus who had their throats slit at one time. All of this came back upon them. And in verse 37, Jesus now, now laments. He grieves over this. He grieves over this. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's referring to the Jews, not the literal city of Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often, speaking of Israel's entire history as a people, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. You were not willing. And the same is true for us. We see here that God has a desire for us, but he gives us the free will, the choice to respond and accept his invitation or to reject it. He says here, I wanted to bring you into safety, to protect you, but you were not willing. And that was the issue. Verse 38, see, your house is left to you desolate. He's speaking prophetically about what would happen in 38 to 40 years. We know the terrible things that lay ahead for Israel as a result of their rejection of Jesus. J Jerusalem and the whole nation would be annihilated and destroyed. The Jewish people would be scattered across the world. They would be everywhere except in their homeland because of the event known as the diaspora. Israel as a country, as a political nation would cease to exist for almost 2,000 years, but there's still hope. Because listen to how Jesus ends this tale of woe. Verse 39. For I say to you, you shall see me no more. Israel, you're not going to see your Messiah anymore. Does he say unless as the next word? No. He says till. Till. There's an expiration date on this. So underline the word till you say. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now do you remember on Palm Sunday as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, presenting himself publicly as the Jewish Messiah and Savior for the first time, the crowd is shouting out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is saying, you're going to say that again at some point in the future. It's not an if, it's a when. And when you say it again, you're going to say it that time with full understanding of who I am. You see, there's only three things that the Bible says specifically we're not to be ignorant about. There's lots the Lord wants us to know, but there's only three things that the Bible says, don't be ignorant about these three things. And wouldn't you know it, inevitably, those are the three things that the modern church is most ignorant about. So what are the three things? Spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12.1. Next thing we're told not to be ignorant about, the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Third thing we're told not to be ignorant about, the future salvation of Israel. 
Romans 11, 25 and 26. We're told don't be ignorant about spiritual gifts. Don't be ignorant about the rapture. Don't be ignorant about the salvation of Israel. I can tell you as a pastor, for most churches, those are the three things that pastors would say. These are the three things you don't talk about because it gets weird. Don't talk about these things. And yet God's word says, I don't want you to be ignorant about these things. God's not done with Israel. He's not through with the Jew. There'll be a day in the future when Israel will say of Jesus with full understanding, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's gonna happen towards the end of the great tribulation, just before the second coming of Christ. If you don't know what I'm talking about, pick up one of our USB jump drives that has our whole revelation series on it because you need to know this stuff. In the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus came to the earth as a man, the prophet Hosea recorded this prophecy written from the perspective of Jesus. I think I put on your outlines, it's Hosea 5.15. He said, I will return again to my place. If he's gonna return, then he had to have left it at some point, right? So he's already here, but he's saying, I came from somewhere to somewhere, now I'm gonna return back to where I went. And then he says, till, there's that word again, I'll return to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. In this concise little prophecy, Jesus shares, he will come from heaven to earth, then return to heaven, and the Jews won't see him again until what? Until they acknowledge their offense. What was their offense? Not recognizing and receiving him as their Messiah, as their savior. What's going to cause them to recognize him as their Messiah in the future? Affliction, the great tribulation specifically. You see, when you read through this list of eight woes and you contrast it with the eight blessings of the Beatitudes, I hope you notice that Jesus is the most anti-religious person who ever lived. He's the most anti-religious person that ever lived. He hates religion. It's been well said that religion is man's attempts to reach to God. While Christianity is all about God reaching out and reaching down to man. In the person of Jesus, God came to us. I could say that a million times and it'll never cease to astound me that in the person of Jesus, God came to us. He came to us. Not so that he could deliver a new set of rules of things we need to do or not do, but he came to do everything that we couldn't do, to keep God's law perfectly, and then he came to receive the punishment in our place for our failure to keep God's law by dying on the cross. And he did all that so that he could invite us into a relationship with him. We're invited to become brothers and sisters of Jesus, sons and daughters of the almighty God. Jesus hates religion because he didn't come to earth to start one. He came to earth to restore man's relationship with God. The relationship we destroyed by rejecting God and failing to meet his perfect law. And so Jesus came to restore that relationship. It's not about religion, it's not about what we do or don't do. It's about a relationship with Jesus and everything flows out of that. So write this down, it's your last fill in. Christianity is a relationship, it's not a religion. Christianity is a relationship, it's not a religion. And my goodness, do we need regular reminders of that truth, I do. Because you and I are drawn to religion over and over again like a moth to a flame. We're drawn to a list of things we can do. A group of boxes we can check to tell ourselves, God's happy with me and I'm right with God. Just tell me what I need to do. But you see, my attempts to be good and do good never work out. They never last. The change never actually takes place because you don't change from the outside in. We're changed from the inside out by a relationship with God. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. See, it's our relationship with Jesus that changes us on the soul level, the spirit level. Are you living in a relationship with God or just religion? Religion's not gonna change you, not really. Are you trying to change who you are on the inside by just changing what you do on the outside? It's not gonna work. We need Jesus to change us from the inside out. So press into Jesus. 
If you want to change your life, if you want to change who you are, if you want to change your behavior, press into a relationship with God and it will just happen. Really. It will just happen. It happens naturally when the Holy Spirit's at work in you. Please don't settle for religion when you could have a relationship with God. Don't settle for religion. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And Father, I just pray for all of us right now, understanding that none of us are immune from becoming Pharisees and living out a religion instead of a relationship with you. Father, if our lives have recently been all about cleaning the cup of our lives on the outside while we're a mess on the inside, Father, would you help us to press into a relationship with you? Would you help us to have a moment of just reconnecting with you even in this coming time of worship, Lord? Would you just remind us that you're here with us You're not a distant God who came to deliver a list of do's and don'ts, but you're a God who came to restore relationship with us. Help us not to settle for religion when you've invited us into a relationship. And what a thing it is to say, I'm in a relationship with the God of the universe. He knows my name. I talk with him. I walk with him. He never leaves me. He never forsakes me. God, if we have nothing else in life, what a treasure that is, that we have you and we walk with the living God. So may we walk with you, God. May we walk with you. We love you, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.